Hello, grace and peace. We're taking anarchy to church here on the Anarchist Bible Study. I'm Josh, aka Iowan Cap, and I'm Jeff, aka Nicolaitan Intolerant. <laughs> that was good. All right, very good. Uh, we don't have anything new to talk about because it's technically the same night as last week. So. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so there's no news uh well i mean there's no news from our perspective hopefully there's lots of news uh which, well hopefully good news which but, is yeah you know. no news is good news they say and uh <laughs> right. it's uh, better than any of the news we brought any other episode so that's right uh, <laughs> however because it is a new week the new listeners are gonna want we're gonna have to recap the verse again which is something that I realized while we were on break. I was like, so we're going to have to reread the first chapter again. Yes. Yes, we are. <laughs> but okay. It's all right. But for most of you, you're like, well, thank you. Thank you for thinking about me. Even when you were, it was fresh in your mind, you were still thinking of me. And, I, and, and you're right. This is why I do what I do is for you. It's for you, dear listener and dear viewer. So, so you're welcome. Hey, Listeners, he included you. He's decided not to uh, get into the petty feud hey, between listeners and viewers that I tried to start I'm, last week. I'm glad that you're listening. I just <laughs> wish you were watching. Uh, <laughs> 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 All right, so so we're gonna get right into it in in light of that uh, very simple fact. So uh, we're getting into the second chapter of the book of Revelation uh, or season two, as we've been calling it. Um, and last episode, we talked broadly about the macro level, looking at the, the seven letters to the church, to the churches and uh, and how this is an important um, detail. This is not unimportant. This is not a parenthesis in the letter or in the vision. Uh, it's important because this the chapters one through three are the full introduction to the full letter that is the revelation. So the apocalypse of John could also be called, we could say, the fourth epistle of John because it's all written in an epistle form. It starts with an introduction. It ends with a with concluding. Um, we call it concluding uh, matters or matters like you find in a letter. And so it is important that this is a letter because it's not written to people in some hypothetical future age or not hypothetical. They wouldn't say it's hypothetical, but it's not written to some future uh, people who will know about what's happening when it happens. It's not written to uh, in, in phases of people. It is written to a specific people at a specific time who would have known what they're talking about. And this is an important theme because it'll tell us how to think about the world that we live in. So once again, let's take a run at this. Um, the, the, the book of Revelation, the first chapter. And actually, the more I thought about it as we were even going on in the last episode, we might have to keep reading the first letter, but we will not review. Or we, we might have to keep reviewing the first chapter, though we will not review every letter as we go on. I think that's maybe what I should be saying. Because the the introductory matters does matter for all of the verses for all the or all the sections. Um, so 
the revelation of Jesus Christ, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, it's a letter from author to the seven churches that are in Asia, recipient of the letter. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the sevenfold spirit who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness or the, the, the faithful, the witness, the faithful one, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth to him who loves us. So sorry, that was that was the greeting of the letter, the grace to you. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That is the dedication of the letter. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now the introduction of the vision part of the letter, or the, 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 the body of the letter. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus uh, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And, and uh, we talked about that, uh, of course, in the first chapter and about how um, there's a, it, it was probably for an exile for the sake of the faith. Uh, he was in exile, um, either voluntary exile, fleeing persecution, or that was his persecution was being sent into exile. Uh, and so he's in Patmos when the vision came to him. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day or Sunday, the day of the day where we worship the Lord. And I heard behind me a loud voice, like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned, I heard, and I turned and I saw the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven churches that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars of the angels of the seven churches, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And this brings us to the text that we will be looking at tonight. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, 
the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. The seven stars being the seven angels in his right hand, and who walks among the seven golden lampstands, which represents the seven churches, which Ephesus is the first one. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So, here we have it. We're getting to the first letter. And as we talked about we, uh, last week on the macro letter, and we're going to keep referencing this as we go on, um, there's a chiasm at work in the seven letters. The first, there's an A and an A prime. And Ephesus and... Uh, let me double check this. Uh, Ephesus... And Laodicea are the A and A prime, so they're the first and last letters. And what we find in the in, in both of these churches is a mixture. There's there's a, a danger of losing what was once there, and yet there's still some good in both places. Um, and then there's an exhortation to repent in order to prevent judgment and to inherit the promises. And we start with these letters, start and end with these letters. Because they represent really the church as a whole. The church as a whole is a mixed bag at that day. And in our last episode, we talked about how that's how it's important that we remember that because we so often will think about our day as if it's uniquely worse. Mm-hmm. Or as if we could get back to the first if we could get back to the first church, we would see that everything was so much better back then. But that's just not the case. Uh, it's, it's just not the case. Um, the church of that day was just as, as damaged as the churches of our day. And we, and ha- they had to be just as much on the lookout, um, a- as we have to be. Um, so, um, we're going to, uh, get into this specific letter and, uh, but there is still some overview matters to deal with because for one thing we have to talk about. What is the structure of all the letters of of uh, to the churches, um, right? Because uh, if you'll, it won't take long before you'll realize that there is some kind of a formula at work here, and so we're going to look at um, at that. So <laughs> right now, what we're looking at in front of us, oops, uh, we're, we're looking at in front of us is is um really the footnote from the reformation study bible at least from the uh not no longer the newest i think they have a new edition out now but um from the second to newest um 
I love the I love the Reformation Study Bible. A lot of people who use the ESV love the ESV Study Bible, and it's okay. I, I think it's a good study Bible. Um, uh, for I give out the ESV Student Study Bible to all of our students at our in our youth group because it's a great study Bible. Um, however, um, the I think the the Reformation Study Bible is just the the best study Bible you can get for the ESV. Um, that's just my humble opinion, but it's true. Um, and and it's in its footnote on the re, on Revelation, it, it introduces this this format. And there's a lot of commentaries that'll bring up formats, but I think this one is the most usable um, format. So Christ shares, shows his care for his churches by addressing each according to its needs, with encouragement, rebuke, exhortation, and promise. He shows detailed knowledge of them. I know. Of all of them, in all the letters, there are allusions to circumstances or traditions of the particular city, uh, probably including some that are no longer recognized. At the same time, all the churches are included in a universal calling to faithfulness and endurance until the promises reach their fulfillment in the heavenly Jerusalem. Their struggles contrast with the peace and satisfaction pictured in 21.1 through 22.5. The exhortations are reinforced by an opening allusion to some element of the majestic vision in, of chapter 1, verses 12 through 20, and therefore have universal bearing. Um, so each message has the same basic form. And we're going to see that as we look at this text today. Um, there's an addressee to the angel of the church uh, in blank. Or in this text today, to the angel in the church of of the church in Ephesus, right, etc. Then there's an identification of Christ, alluding back to His Majesty displayed in, in the earlier chapter one. Uh, the words of Him, or thus says He, who, and we're going to talk about that phrase in, in just a second. Uh, in, in our text today, the one of Him who holds the seven stars in His right hand who walks among the seven gold lampstands. Then there's a claim of knowledge. I know. And then there's what he knows. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. This is actually a especially long one today. I, and then as a second, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. And then there's an evaluation which would be rebukes or commendations or, or both. Um, like the con, common, uh, for, for this text, there's a rebuke, um, but this I have against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. And then there's a promise or a threat. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, here's the threat. I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from this place unless you repent. So there's that threat. And then an exhortation to the listener. And a promise to the one who conquers. Six and seven uh, can sometimes happen in flipped order. Yet, it, in fact, as it that is exactly how it happens in this letter. The one who conquers actually comes second, and the he who has an ear comes first. Um, but, however, in, in most of the letters, it goes the other way around. Um, and so, there's a lot to talk about in in particular in um, this text in front of us. But this is kind of the format. That we're going to follow, uh, that that each of the letters are going to follow. So, um, yeah. 
No, that's good. And um, and yeah, they. Uh, I don't know how intentional that was, but they uh, they got to seven. Yeah, yeah. I think it's <laughs> in, intentional in the outline. <laughs> I think it's intentional. I think I think because I think you you should see seven. The number seven, as we've said before, is a very important number in this uh, book. There's seven churches, the sevenfold spirit, um, seven sevens all over the place and seven aspects to each message i think is important i think that's that's accurate that 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 those are what we're going to see in each each uh each letter now we're back to the let's go back to the uh to the text in front of us um we're gonna go into um this this letter um in fact i think we can zoom in uh the first time on the uh, the letter itself. So this is the letter to the Ephesian church, or as I've written there, the Ephesian church. Just seeing that now. <laughs> Forgot the C. That's my bad. In my defense, I uh, have no defense. All right, so. Um, <laughs> so I'm just going to scroll that out of frame. It's um, a, it's a, um, it's just, you know, you, you, you can't even rely on Randy for good proofreading. <laughs> That's right. Randy. All right. So to Angelo to the angel of the in Ephesian church. Right. That's a, that's a little fun thing that the Greek does sometimes where they'll put the, <laughs> the, 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 the uh, modifier in the middle of the phrase to the, the church then puts the in Ephesians to the in Ephesus church. Uh, and uh, we talked about this before. Okay, so so the question of the angel, um, the seven the seven stars in in Christ's hand are the seven angels. And so, uh, the debate, of course, we have to we have to tell you, bring it up again. The, the debate, of course, is uh, are the angels in question? Are they angels? <laughs> are they actual angels, like heavenly beings? Or are they pastors or messengers that go to a specific church? Um, this, I'll, we'll say this. The letters to the individual churches is probably the closest we get to a good argument for saying that the angels are just messengers or they are preach or pastors of the church. However it still would be quite a stretch to see him changing the way he uses language on such a dime. Um, right. You go from chapter and... one where he says the angel is, this is how Christ revealed is through an angel, but now he's going to use a completely radically different use of the word. Not to be fair, angel can mean messenger, but it's a heavenly messenger. Right. But I also think that there's a, there's a, there's a little hitch in that is that I don't think almost any of these churches would have had a singular pastor. Maybe not any of them. And so, so if it's because uh, Angelo, <laughs> Angeloi, I guess, there's a Yoda subscript there. Um, <laughs> um, uh, uh, but, but uh, uh, 
but not um it's not an omicron yoda over the line here um it's a um it's a so this is singular yep um this is this is a uh um uh inflected singular form of of angel it doesn't it doesn't make sense to me that you'd have seven churches mentioned and all of them have one pastor yeah Yeah. like that that just that's really beyond belief yeah and and if and if you're if you're saying like i don't even know how the argument works if you're saying well they had more than one or the only other um like there wouldn't have been one messenger who carried letters between towns that wouldn't have been a thing there wouldn't have been like how else are you how else are you talking about a singular messenger unless right unless we're talking about a heavenly being yes. messenger with some sort of oversight over these churches yeah. i really i'm i really don't feel that that the uh the pastor interpretation even gets much uh of a foothold here yeah but i mean but to be fair it's the closest we get because yeah the messenger of the church of ephesus right so this could make sense if you're saying so he's writing to the messenger who's going to read the letter so make sure that they read this however theoretically isn't the messenger going to read the whole letter including the letters to the other churches so right yeah I, <laughs> I think it's much more in keeping with what we've talked about before this concept uh that we find in daniel the concept of territorial spiritual uh warriors people who stand for god's yeah. people in a given territory because as yeah. we Which said we think is also we go on. we said we we think is also in luke where he says that um um uh, don't turn away these little ones for their angels look upon the face of the father. Sure. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. And so probably the same idea is yeah. um, angels given particular yes. assignments to watch over. Yes. Uh, yeah. Because of course, as we all, as, as we've talked about before, and it's important that we reiterate, there's no such thing as a purely physical or purely spiritual matter when it comes to our lives Correct. in this earth yes there are purely spiritual beings god himself is purely spiritual but we who are both physical and spiritual there's no such thing as a purely spiritual thing you know like sometimes people will try and get me to comment like do you what do you believe about depression do you think it's spiritual or do you think there's some physical component or do you, you know, like, yes. and, and people will try and push me to say either one or the other, like either it's entirely the work of psychology and medicine, or it's entirely the work of spiritual matters. And I would say, I can't give you either one of those answers. It's both. There's no such thing as anything that is merely physical. There's no such thing as anything that is merely spiritual. So to the angel, to the angel overseeing the church in Ephesus, he says to write Tade Lege. Mm-hmm. The words, as the ESV says it, which is okay. Fine. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. Um, 
but but these words are and this is the the, the problem with it we would see is that um these are potent words as as um we started to get into before um, in the last episode, that these are potent words, these Tade Lege. In fact, we find that they show up uh, 300 and f- over 350 times in the Greek uh, translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. Um, this, and it's all, it's used as a solemn pronouncement. In fact, that's how um, the New, uh, New English translation uh, renders it is this is the solemn pronouncement of him who holds the seven stars. So, and uh, it, it's kind of an, an yeah. uh, the, a translation a lot of times of the Ko Amar or Amar Ko, uh, Amar Yahweh Ko. Thus says the Lord. Thus says so and so. So it can it can be kind of a royal pronouncement, but out of the three hundred fifty times it is used. 320 of them is Yahweh as the subject. Yahweh, the Lord, says thus. Thus, Tade, this, Lege, says the Lord. Uh, so it's a, it's a prophetic pronouncement. And so this is a, a heavy phrase. And, and that's why the words of uh, do, doesn't really cut it. And, and uh, yeah. We, we want yeah, to so my gloss that. my gloss on it my gloss on it when I was running through these uh, last week was uh, thus saith because yeah, it has yeah. that <laughs> uh, to our ears it has that we we want we want to to say the Lord after thus saith um, yes. and I think that's the point I think that's what you're supposed to be getting here um, is that uh, it's supposed to feel like that it's supposed to make you <laughs> prompt you to have that yeah be the next thought and, and I kind of like that too because um, even at the time that this letter was written it was already an archaic phrase oh the yeah ta- yeah the ta- Lege that's the other was, reason <laughs> was largely out of style um, this is actually one of the best arguments for the King James version, by the way, is that the King James Bible, like sometimes people will read it and think it's just such out, out of date language and be like, well, that's, that's kind of the common argument against it. Um, we, we've talked about our other arguments against the King James, but that I think is actually the best argument for it. Even though that's one that people usually go to, well, it's outdated. Well, that was actually the point. It was actually intentionally, outdated language even when it was written it was not written in the modern language of the day like i think sometimes we picture that like oh this was the way that people talked in those days with these and those but no it was intentionally archaic intentionally what we might call high language in order to emphasize the what i guess we could call it the depth of it or the antiquity or the ancients or the seriousness of it and so when you, if you were reading just a, a regular old letter and all of a sudden right in the middle you see, thus says Josh, a.k.a. Ion Cap, <laughs> uh, podcaster of the Flyover Libertarian Empire, host of the Bible study of the anarchists. Like you would, you would notice that I'm doing something. I'm trying to, to raise the seriousness and the importance of the pronouncement, even if it sounds a little silly. And so that's, what's going on here is you've got a thus says, thus saith 
the 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 one holding the th- the stars. Um, but we could we could also point out as as you said before, this is usually something that the Lord says. But who's saying this? It's the one who stands in the midst of the of the, of the, soul of the gold lampstands and holds the seven stars in his hand. Uh, well, we know because we just read that text leading into this. This is Christ. Who is the one speaking authoritatively as the Lord does all throughout the Old Testament? It is the Christ. And um, mm-hmm. and this is interesting because this appears, I think, I don't think this, uh, this phrase appears with each of the letters and yet, and I don't think it appears anywhere else in the, in the book of Revelation, but there's no, one other right. place. But there's one other place that it appears in the New Testament, and that is also an interesting uh, thing, and that's from Acts 21. And just to be clear, all all seven times it appears in Revelation, it is Jesus doing the speaking. Yes, correct. Uh, so it's thus saith, and then a phrase that describes Jesus. And then, and then Acts twenty one. Well, here we see. So, we have a prophet named Agabus, starting in verse ten. There, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, "Tade lege." Thus says, and there I think there they're getting the prophetic pronouncement. Uh, of it thus says the holy spirit the holy spirit yeah this is how the jews at jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the gentiles so he's prophesying that when paul goes to jerusalem the jews will capture him and and imprison him and then send him away to Rome. And that is actually what happens. We're getting toward the end of the letter. We know that spoiler alert. Paul does go to prison. It's a uh, kind of a big deal. Um, but it's the, thus says, thus says the Lord, thus is the Holy spirit. This is the spirit speaking. So, um, while this isn't a knockdown drag out argument for the divinity of Christ and the Holy spirit, there are other arguments, but it is certainly excellent supporting. We, uh, supporting we talked evidence. about one. We talked about one two weeks ago with Joel in Acts five, um, right. as a as a very really very strong argument for the deity strong. of the Holy Spirit. And we've seen some much stronger arguments in the Book of Revelation, if you want to yes. go back and watch <laughs> them. But this is important supporting evidence. Is that phrases that usually end with usually. Uh, have Yahweh as their subject. Here we see the Holy Spirit and Christ receive the the uh, are the subjects of them. Right. So so I phrase it three hundred and twenty times in the Old Testament out of the three hundred and fifty that it's used is is Yahweh is the one speaking. Yes. Is only used eight times in the New Testament, seven times it's Jesus, and one time it's the Holy Spirit. <laughs> so the message, the, the implicit message underneath that, now of course, 
if this were contradicted by the rest of the New Testament, then then we would have to say, oh, that must not right. have been what they were going for. But because this is supported the by the rest place. of the New Testament. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but because this is supported by the rest of the New Testament, we can say that the implicit message here is that Jesus is Yahweh and the Holy Spirit is Yahweh. Yes. Um, and and uh, and we're joining some good company and namely the entire church in saying this. Yes. So. <laughs> Tade Lege thus says, and then there's two parallel descriptions of, of Christ. And both of them come from, as we said, the previous section. Uh, Ho Kraton, the one holding, this is a, a, a Greekism, is that uh, you've got an ing word, a gerund or a participle with a dative part uh, prefix which uh, renders it a the one doing something. Uh, and so we have here um, the one holding the seven stars in his hand, in his right hand, in the dexia out to um, the one. And but then it's a parallel. So who walks is kind of a smoothing out the translation. But it literally is another phrase. Uh, you, you, if you see that, I hope you can see that. Even if you don't yeah. uh, study Greek, you can see that sort of those those two have have the similar one endings. Walking about, <laughs> yeah, the one walking and meso in the midst of the seven. Once again, the seven uh, lampstands of gold. The seven lampstands, the ones of gold. Uh, and so these are both, of course, as, as we've said, they are descriptions of uh, Jesus from the section before. Um, so I, I heard a voice, and the voice was like a loud voice, like a trumpet, saying, write what you see in a book and write, send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned, and what does he see the voice? sees on turning I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man clothed with a long robe with a long sash around his chest hairs of his head were like white like wool like snow his eyes were like a flaming fire his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace and his voice was like the roar of many waters in his right hand he held seven stars so the seven stars are the angels Seven lampstands, this is from verse 20, are the church, seven churches. And so the churches reflect the light of Christ. He stands in the midst of them. He is the one who, who is in the midst of the seven lampstands. The, the light they burn with is the light of Christ, and it is uh, the, the fire of the sevenfold spirit burning through them. And he holds the, the, the angels in his hand. He holds the messengers, the ones who bring the message. So the sevenfold spirit comes through the seven angels to the seven churches from Christ, who stands in the midst of it. And that is the emphasis here. The emphasis here is that Christ is the one who gives this message. You know, the one who is speaking is the one who is who knows the churches, who is in the midst of them, and who holds in mm -hmm. his right hand the message that they carry. And so, um, especially as the first letter, 
This is important emphasis of the one speaking to them is the one who is worth listening to. I mean, for one thing, it's, this definitely was emphasized here. Right. Yeah. Well, and he's the one who maintains the lampstands, which connects to the warning that he's going to give later. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a great, that's good. That's an excellent point. Um, Mm-hmm. And and I think I think that kind of sets the tone for the rest of these churches is, is so I think I mean so I think the one of the one of the main reasons I, I think there's another reason why he um, why he uses this um, for this church, but I think one of the main reasons is because um, because he's talking to Ephesus first. And so if he's talking to Ephesus first, mm-hmm. then he's going to set the table for yeah. how he's addressing all the churches. Absolutely. Um, and, and one of the most important things for all the churches to know is that Jesus is the keeper of lampstands. Right. He's the one maintaining, he's the one maintaining their service. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, and, uh, um, what, and and then that's why in every single section, and especially and including in this one, it starts with a statement of knowledge, because since he is in the midst of it and he is tending the lamps, which by the way is also a priestly duty, it's a priestly duty to tend the lamps, and so in his kingly duty to mm-hmm. proclaim the truth that they are to follow and declaring what they are to do, he's also performing his priestly duty of tending the lamps in the the temple. Um. And so, what does he say? He starts with, I know. He has knowledge. The one who is in their midst, who is tending the lamps, who, who supplies the, 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 the fuel and the fire and the light for them to burn with, he says, I know you. And what does he know? He, there's, there's a bunch of parallel phrases. He piles up a bunch of phrases, which is a very uh, Greek rhetorical thing to do. The one in the midst uh, piles up. um, I know. What does he know? I know your works. First of all, he starts with that. He starts with. Sorry about that. Sorry about that, viewers. Um, I know your works. Um, Which is is kind of a common one. It's so so common that there's a couple places where it doesn't appear in the letter. And um, (laughs) and some of the, the the later scribes copying it just added it assuming it was missing um but he starts with i know your works and your toil that word copone um the toil is is uh the phrase uh, the the word that um well in the condemnation of the fall in in, in the garden says this is what's going to happen what enters at the fall isn't work it's toil it's not that you will you weren't working before, and now you are working. I think that somehow we think of sometimes we think of eternity in heaven as like we're not going to work anymore. No, no, there's still going to be work mm. to do. There won't be toil. Mm. Toil is the idea when when you work, uh, when you put your your back and your sweat and your everything into working on a car, and you in the end realize it's never going to run. When you uh, labor in the field for an entire for an entire season, and then the fall comes and nothing's growing like that's that's toil 
Toil is the fact that we can work real hard, we can do everything right, and sometimes things just don't work out. Um, and that's that's just reality. And so there's, he knows your toil. That they have labored and they have worked, and sometimes it's felt fruitless. And there's been and, and your patience, your your hupo mone. This is your your bearing under hupo under mone bearing your your. Your, your endurance, they call it, 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 it translates patient endurance, but just that you've bore so much. We, we can see, if we skip past this, this first part, we get a, a wrong impression of the, of the Ephesian church and we'll think it's all bad, all bad, but it's not like they have worked hard. You have toiled, you have worked, you've endured and you have no ability Okay, you you bear a lot, but you have no ability to bear with the evil ones. And there are those who would go around in those days claiming the name of apostle, and they were not. And you have tested them. Mm -hmm. They tested them. They were not going to just take uh, some guy walking into their church and saying, I'm an apostle. They were going to test them, even and, and, and they found them to be false. And uh, and you have, again, he states endurance and you have endurance, you have patience, you've been bearing and bearing for my name's sake and have not grown weary. So there's a there's a lot to compliment to compliment this church about. And and really, it's a testament to the success of Paul, as we read before the uh, mm -hmm. in Acts uh, sorry, Acts 20. Nope, not there either. Acts 22 or 21. We read of the thus says the Holy Spirit. But just a chapter before. We have um, one of the greatest, I think, um, speeches. Uh, I, honestly, I think um, a lot of times when we talk about elders, we go to First Timothy and Titus for the qualifications of an elder. And that's important. Those are important phrases or important sections. Um, but what those talk about is what an elder should be, not what an elder should do. But we see in this passage, probably the best place of mm. saying what an elder should do. Um, and also possibly second Corinthians. There's a lot in second Corinthians speaking about the work of the elder, but here Paul on his way to Jerusalem, knowing that it's very possible he will never see them again. He, he tells them, all right, you saw how I lived the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. So he's saying, talking about how he, he suffered among them and he served and, and never, and he did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public from house to house and, and, and uh, the public would be like in the public square. He would teach in public square, then house to house. Like that sounds like private meetings, but it's probably more like local church gatherings. So cause mm -hmm. the local churches would gather in um, church in, members houses. In, and by again, especially there, after they're expelled from the synagogue. Yes. And there it's also, it's still very easy to confuse because when we think houses, we're thinking, um, local houses in a, in a living room, but we're talking about probably um, the more wealthy members of the church who would have larger houses that they could house them in. So we're not wrong 
uh, house church movement to build churches. We're not wrong to build churches. This was what essentially what they had. They had these large family households that they could meet in. And so from house to house or from church to church, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus. So he's got the same message for both Jews and Greeks. That's repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Holy Spirit or by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, though he'll find out in the next chapter, except (laughs) that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So that's all talking about what he's done. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Um, Now, it's possible that he's wrong. Um. It's possible that he's just saying, I, I don't know that I'm ever going to see them again. He seems like he doesn't know if he's going to see them again. And at the time of the writing of the book of Acts, it was uncertain whether he'd see them again. However, First um, Timothy seems to indicate that he does actually make it back to Ephesus. And then he leaves Titus there or Timothy there, unless he leaves Timothy on this visit, which I don't know that we can say that. But it seems like doesn't he seem makes like it back. So. Seems like he makes it back. So that's some good news. There you go. We're not all doom and gloom here on the Anarchist Bible Study. We, we talk about the good news, too. Uh, therefore, I testify to you on this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And then verse 28. And this is really like literally a whole book has been written about this one verse. <laughs> it's called <laughs> The Reformed Pastor by Richard Baxter, and everyone considering ministry should read it. Pay careful attention to yourselves. And to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God or literally to shepherd the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. This is where I get controversial. Hello. Uh, I don't see a biblical difference between the word for pastor and the word for elder. And so I'm I am my title at my church is called pastor. However, I do not see myself as above in any way the non-vocational elders, the ones who are called elder in my church, but are not paid. There, there seems to be some push in, in the letters to say that it makes sense for some elders to be paid and some not. But that doesn't make the paid elder a pastor and everyone else just an elder. The elders are the pastors and the pastors are the elders. And also, they're both an a overseer. Uh-oh, that's the word for bishop. So once, so we're getting controversial here. We don't. Hey, Paul says he didn't shrink back from anything controversial. Neither will we. Uh, an elder and a and a bishop and a pastor, same thing, biblically speaking. The overseer is a shepherd, is the elder. All right. Okay, so. God, the Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood or the blood of his own. There's some question about how to translate that. doesn't matter too much for what we're saying. But he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw 
away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God with the word of his grace, which is able to build you up, to give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. And then he continues. But there's that emphasis right there that he says, here's the deal, guys. There's going to be wolves from the outside and false prophets from or false teachers from the inside. This is what he's warning is going to rise in the place of Ephesus and really is the worry that we have had to the thing that we've had to contain with contend with to this very day. Wolves outside the church trying to tear down the flock, putting up fences, changing locks on doors, telling them not to come to church on Sunday, sending their their pastors to jail. Wolves from the outside. And uh, John Calvin famously said that a shepherd, a pastor, needs to develop two voices. A voice for the sheep and a voice for the wolves. I do not need to speak kindly to a wolf. I do not speak gentle words to someone who is trying to eat my flock. Right. And so there's been there's been a lot of talk lately about how oh they they not they don't have nuance they don't have a kind voice they're not gentle they're they're so <laughs> brash they're so blah, 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 blah. I don't have to be I don't have to be if I'm talking to a wolf if I'm talking to someone who is who is attempting to tear apart the church or if I'm talking to a false teacher someone who is rising up from our midst who is teaching false things about the scripture false things about God, I do not speak gently to you. My gentle voice is for the sheep. And this is this is why, actually, when I was in seminary, a lot of my classmates were a little worried that I wouldn't know how to talk to, uh, <laughs> to church people because they only heard my voice around other... Uh, Around other ministry professionals. I don't call them pastors because some of them were disqualified for a reason, um, you know, that uh, I wasn't actually allowed to talk about at my regional seminary that had broad perspectives coming at it. Um, but I wouldn't call them pastors also because many of them were <sighs> idiots. Honestly, we're just people who, who did not understand the basics of the, of the scripture, did not understand basic biblical teaching, and they were supposed to protect the teaching against false teachers. How could they do that if they didn't know it? And so I, yeah, it's true. I used my wolf and false teacher voice a lot at my regional seminary, which had a variety of uh, diverse perspectives represented there. Um, but then when I would come to my church and I would talk to my youth group, like, just take this. I was sitting in a class in seminary where I heard a pastor of 10 years. He had been pastoring a church for 10 years. Say he'd need to think about the concept that Jesus still has a body. That he needed to consider that. Well, I'm going to have to think about that one. You have to think about the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Like that is basic stuff. And I and Colossians two nine. <laughs> I ins that, in the, 
And like we said before, in Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells, present tense, in bodily bodily, form. Right. And the phrase that we (laughs) use when we say Christ is returning is meaningless if he doesn't have a body in which he is. Well, and and for the second week in a row, we for the second week in a row, we say way to make communion absolutely meaningless. Right. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. If what we if. The phrase he is coming again is meaningless if he is if he ditched his body and went back to his pre-incarnate state because right. Christ because the word of God the son, eternal son of God being God is everywhere his body is at the right hand of God and so when we say he's returning we mean he is still embodied his embodied uh, flesh that will return one day. And so I heard, and I just, my jaw dropped and I could, I didn't even know what to say to this man. However, when I then went to, uh, as uh, last year, we walked through the, or two, sorry, not this last year, but two years ago, we walked through the story of Jesus, the whole gospel as the story of Jesus with my, with my, uh, youth group. And we got to the Ascension and I brought up and I said, did you know that Christ still has a body? And everyone in the room said, huh, I hadn't thought about that. I did not think any higher or lower of any of them because they were in the position right. where like, they were sheep. They're supposed right. to be taught. I am supposed to lead them. Right. And, and it, didn't, it didn't bother me at all that I had to teach these young men and women Yes, Christ is still in a body. In fact, that's what we mean by the resurrection and ascension is that he is still embodied. And then I, I communicated to them as, as carefully as I could why that was good news for us, that he's still in his body. Mm-hmm. So we do. We are called elders, whether paid or unpaid, are called to develop two different voices. And so when you hear an elder or when you see an elder on Twitter launch into an el- another elder who is misrepresenting God's word or is twisting it or is apologizing for it or, or backing off of it that is completely within our rights. That is, in fact, that is our job. When we see an elder turn away, and, this, and by the way, that by doing so, we're not even necessarily uh, saying they're a wolf or a false teacher necessarily Paul remember in the book of Galatians relays an, an, an incident where Paul stands up in front of everyone and calls Peter to the carpet. He calls out Peter says in front of everyone. Now, did he skip the first and second uh, steps of church discipline? Is, is Paul just getting out of, he's going, getting out of line? no, because a public statement or public actions right. by Peter desert, re, need a public response. Right. And Paul was not going right. to let no. Peter's actions, yeah. right. even though they might have been an unintentionally sending a message, he was not going to let Paul Peter's actions, even Peter, split the church over it and, and lead them astray. Right. And especially note, it's important note that to in Matthew 18 it says... Someone you. Yes. <laughs> not 
that if someone sins against you, yeah, not if someone commits a public open yes. sin. Yes. If there's public sin by a public leader of the church, it needs to be responded to publicly and authoritatively on God's word and sharply so that no sheep are led astray, even if it's unintentional, even if it's just from sloppy language. And if I as an elder am unintentionally leading sheep astray due to sloppy language or to um, a, a fault, my response better not be, well, you're out of line. My response should be praise the Lord that you called me to account, which it seems like that's what Peter would resp- respond because I don't want to speak twisted things and draw right. disciples after myself. Right. Is <laughs> because, um, it, because it, it, we, that's a risk yeah. of these very people who learned at the feet of Paul. Yes. It's a risk that they, even they will start speaking twisted things and draw disciples after them. Yeah. And, and in many ways, John is congratulating them for listening to Paul, mm-hmm. for doing what Paul said to do. And, and it's possible that this is also after, again, it depends on the dating. Um, if, if you want to date it in AD 70 or AD 135, I previously said I leaned toward AD 70. I might be, or not 135, sorry, 90. Oh my gosh, I got a different date in my number, in my head. Uh, 80, 70 or 80, 90. Um, I, I might be leaning back to 80, 90. I don't know. I changed based on the week. Um, <laughs> but, but if this is, if this is the 80, 90 date, then definitely if it's 80, 70, it's possibly also written after or around or close to the time when Christ or not Christ, sorry. When Paul is killed, 80, 90 is definitely after that. And so they also would yeah. have been working. And even, even 70 probably is. Yeah. And, and they, um, either way, they also they learn from Paul and also from Timothy. Timothy labored among them for for a long time, establishing elders. In fact, the elders he's that John is writing to may have been established by Timothy, uh, appointed by Timothy. And so, in many ways, there is something to commend them about this that they stood for the truth. This is why we say that this is a mixed congregation not a bad church like there's a mixture right. they bore hard they uh, and, and and he'll come back to a a specific false teaching that they were good to oppose and they oppose strongly jesus does not say well could you spend a little less time on doctrine because i think in a few <laughs> in a few phrases or a few verses we're going to be tempted to say that Jesus does not say that. Hmm. Jesus does not say, hey, I wish you had pursued unity at the, uh, had not pushed your doctrine as hard and had pursued unity instead. He does not say, hey, I wish you were a little more gentle and nuanced. He does not say, hey, you know what? Theology divides, so let's not talk about it. He congratulates them for standing on the truth, for testing those who call themselves apostles and are not. That is divisive. That is divisive. They divided themselves from the false apostles. And, And and that is good. That is a good thing. Um, There are things that are worth dividing a church over. Um, When J. Gresham Machen 
left Princeton Seminary to form his own seminary because Princeton had become horribly and incurably liberal. He was right to do so. That was a right division. When he was kicked out of what would later become the PCUSA because it had become liberal and he was refusing to go with their liberalism and instead standing for the truth and instead helped form a new church, a new Presbyterian denomination, the OPC. I'm thinking of this, by the way, because very recently our friends over at Revived Thoughts uh, gave this, did an amazing uh, sermon by Gresham Machen, including some background of his that was so interesting. I've never, I, 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 I never hear about, I never hear about Machen's time in the military or at the war. So, such an interesting podcast. Go listen to that. Um, but uh, that's why he's on my mind. But he's, he was not wrong to divide the church there. And if it were to come to it, that a church were divided on the, the concept of should we stay open or should we follow the health guidelines of the government, the, the side that says, no, we are not closing. We are forming our own church because we are supposed to gather for public worship would not be in sin by dividing the church. That is not sin. Dividing over truth is not sin. Using a using your wolf voice against wolves is not sin. It's not un, being ungentle. Right. And uh, and again, people are always like, "Oh, but Jesus, yeah. he says I'm I'm meek and I'm I'm gentle and low and and meek in heart." Well, apparently that did not disqualify making a whip of cord and driving people out of the temple. Apparently, meek and lowly includes a voice for the wolf and a voice for the false teacher and a voice of rebuke for well, the wayward elder. He he could have straight up... Um, Raiders of the Lost Ark just face melted <laughs> all of them in front of him uh, instead of taking the time to make a whip and and uh, and drive them out. Or yeah. or even if he was determined to do it with a whip, um, he could have just made one appear to appear in his hand uh, rather than taking his time and braiding it. You know, he took the time to make a, a cool whip rather than a miracle whip oh, cool. um that yeah. was very uh well sorry oh yeah i yeah. i i, it's I went a long way for that dad joke but it's still <laughs> as we're recording it is yeah gotta... <laughs> yeah i went a long way for that dad joke but i feel it was worth it um uh, <laughs> i stand by it um anyway no but yeah no i mean but that was that was meek and low is, is my point is that was meek and lowly <laughs> is yeah. the, the other op the other option the other option was to atomize these suckers you know wow. <laughs> this is still the man with a sword with a double-edged sword in his mouth who was able to he spoke the world into existence that could and as uh many a parent again has said to a wayward child I brought you into this world. I can take you out of it. This is Jesus par excellence could have done that. But, but, but that's all to say. Well, it, and, and he upholds the world by the word of his power. Yes. So 
he just has to stop. Stop. Yeah. Stop bringing them into existence. Stop keeping them in existence and they will cease to exist. Oh my goodness. If we, if we, if we could all be aware of that more often of that grace of God that he allows mm-hmm. us to continue to existing. Cause it does not take any work for him to stop. He would just stop allowing us to exist and we'd stop existing. It's an amazing truth, but, but, but all of this, this is so important because especially now, because there's so much fighting online over this discussion and there is a lot of fighting going on in the libertarian party in the Southern Baptist conference and in and, and this this fight that's going on in the southern baptist conference is going on in small ways and all in many other so-called conservative or historically conservative churches and and there's a there's always one side that's it, it seems in every situation there's one side who's standing up and saying this is wrong you are wrong you are leading the church astray and the other side is saying decorum decorum and that is <laughs> foolish sinfully foolish and those people saying so are either wolves the very people who should be rejected or false teachers the very people who should be called out or best case scenario they're like peter who are unintentionally leading people astray and so need to be rebuked publicly for the sake of the sheep and if you are on that side if you're on the side shouting decorum while the other side is shouting truth that should be a sign for you to check yourself. Check yourself. If you are like Peter, you should stop and say, hold on. Because we know that Peter got it right later. Because the, the subtext of that Galatians passage, if, you're, if, if you put the Galatians church uh, letter back into historical context, he is writing that letter on his way to the Acts 15 council. And the subtext of that letter is, and I'm willing to do it again. He doesn't know what side. I think he doesn't know what side Peter's going to be on when he gets to this Acts 15 council. He knows he's been on the wrong side before, and he's. I think there's maybe a little worry. I think that's why he says things in that letter like, "I met with those who were considered pillars, yet who they are, it doesn't matter to me. I, God does not look at faces." I think he is setting up the Galatians to for the fact that it's possible he might have to do it again. And so I can just I can just picture like if you just I, I feel like just picture Paul's face as he sees Peter get up and start talking to the council. Like I can just picture him in, in wherever Paul was sitting going, oh, thank God. Oh. <laughs> I, can, I can just see I can see the, the tension fall out of his shoulders like, oh, good. And then it gets to Peter, Paul and in, in, in that in X-15, all he says is, yeah, 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 what he said. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with what he said. <laughs> and so uh, I think there's, a, there's there. I think it's very reasonable to see that subtext that he's willing to go at him again and to oppose him again. If that's the way the council goes. Um, and, and we need to be ready to do that. And we should not criticize elders who do so. Sometimes there is a reason cause to say there, there is a place to say, Hey, you jumped the gun or Hey, you went too far. A gentle rebuke in that direction is good. But this constant call for decorum, decorum, decorum. Hey, let's not, let's, let's be gentle. Let's be, let's be kind to each other. Let's, 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 let's observe the 11th commandment. Don't thou shalt not speak uh, unkindly of another SBC pastor. Like, like th- this is just wrong. 
if if elders and pastors are leading the church astray, it is right for the truth-loving pastors to object strongly, loudly, and publicly. And in fact, they must. And it is very frustrating for me to see apparent reformed, apparent Calvinists on the wrong side of this. It's very frustrating to me because they they they've they've heard Calvin say you need two voices, one for the sheep and one for the wolf. And uh mm. and so Jesus is and and in fact we see both at play in this very letter that Jesus is using his sheep mm-hmm. voice to those who are to to that to the part of the church that has stood for truth and that that, that they have borne, they've endured they toiled and worked and labored and patiently bore for my for the namesake and you oppose the Nicolaitans we'll come back to that but they, they need a rebuke and I, I think we should see this as a fatherly rebuke um, with the possibility of becoming uh, if they don't rebuke becoming a wolf voice <coughs> but he said there is a but uh, and that's from verse four. Let's pull that up. But I have this against you. That you've abandoned that the love, the first one, you've let it go. You've abandoned it. You walked away from your first love. And and uh this is where I I guess I could say this, that I found great comfort from this passage. Um, e- even though it's, it's kind of a, a, it is a critique. I have found great comfort in this passage, both about uh, the theological viewpoint that I, <laughs> that I su- ups- uh, subscribe to and, um, and love, and also sometimes about my own soul in my own heart situation I found myself in is that, um, as I've said, um, we, and, and we said several times, the reformed viewpoint, um, is a contend for truth viewpoint. That is a strong component, a very strong thing about Calvinism or reformed theology. Um, is that we do systematic theology, we do exegetical theology, and we do contending for the truth. Um, however, we do also have a lot of arrogance, <laughs> which comes, and we also, sorry, which comes from, I should finish my thought, which, as Paul says, comes from pride or knowledge without love. Mm. Knowledge puffs mm-hmm. up, but love builds up. And he's, he's not saying knowledge is bad. Mm-hmm. He's saying knowledge apart from love puffs up. Right. And this, I think there's, there's something that we've always, we've often noticed is that reformed theology is filled with arrogant people. In spite of the fact that our viewpoint should disallow arrogance, <laughs> which is something right. of an irony. And yet it makes a sort of, it makes a sense in a, a biblical sense, both from the Ephesian church point of view and from Paul's point of view, it's that it's very easy to become puffed up when knowledge is separated from love. And and that seems to be what we have both with the Corinthians of Paul's day and with the Ephesians of, of John's day. 
is a a love for truth, and a or a, a, a desire for truth without love. Is that what you see here as well? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and that's, um, hmm. yeah, I do think, um, that's certainly, um, something I find that with with uh, that you you almost one does almost have to come before the other not that you can't love people without having having some knowledge and some but but you almost um, you almost do need um uh, i think i think god in his wisdom does usually give um an an ideological grounding a truth grounding first um and then um he graciously bears with you as you wound some people with that <laughs> um and then and then helps you along um to love people better yeah in combination with that in yeah. combination with that truth and, yeah. and and to an extent love that that kind of love that we're talking about um does grow more slowly than knowledge sometimes can yeah, yeah. um you can you can gain a yeah. lot of knowledge very quickly. You can't gain a lot of love very quickly. It almost yeah. has to come a little slower. And and we should emphasize that there's three possible things of what is this love that they had at first. There's three possible things. The first two, I think, aren't what he's talking about and yet are worth talking about. <laughs> I don't think mm -hmm. this, for instance, you could start with, okay, what is the love? It could be the, the first love, the first commandment love love of God it is possible and and if we're all honest what happens to us all occasionally that we start to get so caught up in truth about God we forget that we're talking about a person and not a series of facts and and sometimes I can find myself in, in a situation where I am preparing a sermon or a lesson or some kind of teaching or a worship service, uh, emphasis, thinking about what truths I need to tell. And that's a good thing. And then it kind of hits me like I'm just dispassionately doing this and I don't, I'm not doing this out of love. Like there's no passion. I'm, I'm feeling no love for God as I'm reading his word, as I'm studying it, I am doing it. I'm checking boxes. I'm doing it to check the box or I'm doing it as an intellectual exercise and, and not that intellectual exercises are bad. Um, I think that that's one great thing about one thing that I love about the way that the Lord has, has, um, has made me 
is that I, I worship the Lord intellectually. Uh, I, what we're doing right now, this is not work. (laughs) This is not labor. I am not like, Oh crap. Another episode. What are we going to do? And and even like the the time (laughs) that we're, I have to stop myself from studying to do other things. So I'm like, okay, okay. I can't have, I can't only have fun today. I've got to do some work. <laughs> uh, I, I love this and I, I get, or, and, or and to, of, to use it, to use the words you used earlier, it's work, but not toil. Um, right. Right. <laughs> for us, it's, this it's kind a of labor thing. of love. Yeah. I love doing this and I, and I do worship through that. Um, and yet sometimes mm-hmm. it, it, it happens to all of us. Like everyone goes dry. I think there's a this sense that, uh, I think because it's an internal thing, um, we can think that we're the only ones doing it or that we're the only ones going through it. And, and the truth is, like, sometimes people will talk about, hey, how many pastors are out there preaching what they don't, what they're not feeling? And the truth is, all of us at some point some point every single one of us at some point because you know what whether i'm feeling it on sunday morning or not the word has to be preached whether i'm feeling it or not on sunday night the youth have to be taught or or if i'm whether i'm i'm feeling it or not someone has to lead the church in in music and and we all if we do it long enough well we'll have i mean i i we were we were talking before the show i I, I preach less than you do, but, but, um, I'm sure, I'm sure we both, uh, but I've, I've had that experience too. I have to preach something. I don't, right. I'm not totally feeling, <laughs> um, yeah. uh, but I've had much more frequently the experience of, I have to catechize my children or yes. teach my children something that I'm not really feeling right now. <laughs> or I'm, yeah, it's just, it's true. And that's the hardest congregation of all because there's no days off from that. I can't take my, I can't take my Monday off from, from, from teaching my children, from, from discipling my children. Like there's a, there's a reality that every last one of us, we all find ourselves in one situation where we are pursuing a truth that we are not feeling. And that's why there's more work. There's more means of grace than just the word. This is why we have, mm-hmm communion where we can come to the table in, in desperate need of nourishment from the Lord that our minds just have, we've, we've hit the end of what our minds can do. And, uh, and we need prayer. There are some times when I need to, as I'm, I'm walking up to the front of the room to teach my lesson. I'm like, Lord, do something miraculous because I have nothing. I've got nothing. There's nothing in me. I have nothing to give them. I need you to do something because I'm, it's not going to be me. And, and there's times when I have, I'm sitting at my desk and I say, Lord, I, I, I feel nothing. I feel so cold about what I am preparing to teach. I need you to work in me and to bring me back to the love that I had before. Um, and I don't think that this, that's what 
this passage is talking about. And yet that's a, that's something that happens. It's worth talking about. And I think especially because, um, you know, I, I think of that the, 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 the man, I don't know if he's young or old, who had read, wrote in uh, the comments in our um, video before that, that you read uh, last episode where he's talking about how, how much, how he's like realizing that he's got a lot more to go with scripture. study the scripture, I I've talked to a lot of new believers where, where they all have this sort of like fear that, that they're doing it wrong or that they're, 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 they're losing what they had. And, and uh, I think they need to hear or, or even seasoned believers who think that they need to keep pretending to have the fire alive because it's flagging mm. and they and they're like, but if I if I show that it's flagging, then everyone's going to think I'm I'm not a real Christian or it's going to undo all the work I've done before. It's not. It's not. We all feel that it happens to all of us mm-hmm. at some point. Like you, the, what, what do we do? Two things. You keep going. <laughs> you can't stop just because you're not feeling. You're, right. you're not feeling it. You keep going. They didn't stop contending for truth even when their their zeal was flagging. They still went. They still pushed because the work still needs to be done. Second thing you do is you remember that the Lord allowed this to happen to you and he did it so that he could teach you dependence and so so follow that and cry out to him in prayer remember that remember that this is a reminder <laughs> that you were never mm-hmm. going to do it by yourself it was never going to be something you could do on yourself uh c.s lewis once said um he, he heard someone he heard people say that christianity is hard and he says it's not true christianity is impossible <laughs> the Christian life isn't hard. It's impossible. That's the point. <laughs> the point is it's right. impossible. It was always about him. You cannot do it. We need something more than us uh, in order to accomplish it. If we could do it by ourselves, then Christ didn't need to die. But it was always about more than what we could give. And and that's a, a remi- that's that's something that he's teaching us when he allows our zeal to to for, and our love for him to to fade is is to drive us to to the cross to to the foot of the throne to beg him to do what we can't do. Um, and I thought that was worth saying, even though right. I don't think that's worth saying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and this is, I mean. This first reading is, is I think, by far the most common, yeah. right? like overwhelmingly the most yeah. common reading of, of what the, of what this means, and, and, and that's, that's not because it has, um, no support elsewhere in scripture, right? Right. right. <laughs> like, like, There's a reason we go to it first is because I think we all come to it with like, that that feeling in our heart that like yeah I've been there. Hey guys, IOA and Cap once again hopping on to let you know that we're going to be splitting this episode into another episode. After splitting the last episode off and spending some time editing this one, it became clear that this was way too long and we needed to split it again. I know we have a problem, don't be a nerd about it, okay? 
but anyway, we'll come, we'll come back again next week, and we're going to talk more about the Ephesian church. Um, we split. I know it's a kind of an awkward place to split, but uh, there was really no good spot to stop it. So <laughs> we hope you uh, got your whistle wetted and you want to know the other two ways that uh, the, uh, the Ephesian church's love could go cold. Um or, the, or the, what that phrase could mean. And so uh, make your way back next week. And in the meantime, like, subscribe, rate, uh, leave a comment, send an email to anarchistbiblestudy at gmail.com. Uh, ask us a question. Give us a comment. Give us a compliment. Tell us how incredibly wonderful and amazing we are. You know, we love hearing that kind of thing. And, um, most importantly, join us again next week when we take Anarchy to Church. Grace and peace. <laughs>